Thank you for tuning in to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. In 2 Samuel 14, you need to remember what has happened. We won't go through the entire text, and if you missed it this morning, you may feel a little bit lost, but it goes like this. If you can remember, David is going to be punished because of his sin. And the punishment was that Amnon rapes Tamar, Absalom holds a grudge against Amnon, and two years later, in a premeditated plot, kills him. Absalom has to run because he's killed a man. He runs to Geshur, which is in the Manasseh land, but it's actually a foreign country, and he's living there in this little foreign country, 72 miles from home. Well, Joab looks around and he sees that David is really upset still that Amnon has never been brought to justice. And David is sitting around thinking, what should I do? And, and, and he's rather sort of frozen in his activity. You notice all through this, when, when Tamar gets raped, David is frozen, doesn't do anything. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The same thing is true um, in this case. He doesn't really do anything. And so Joab, really concerned about the future of the nation, has a woman come and sort of trick David into making a verdict so that there could sort of be like the lawyers do. They, they will appeal to some case where a verdict went a certain way. This was really what Joab was trying to do. He was trying to get David to make a verdict that he could then appeal to and bring Joab back home. It worked perfect. It worked absolutely perfect. And so Joab goes up and gets Absalom and sure and brings him back. But for two years, he's just basically under house arrest. He doesn't do anything, but just stays in one place. Well, Absalom gets upset, as you can remember from this morning, and says, hey, if I'm not even going to see the face of the king, Joab, I want to see the face of the king. And Joab won't come. And I think Joab is realizing Absalom's not the right guy for the job. Well, he says, Joab, come. And he won't. So he burns down his barley field. Then Joab comes. So Absalom knew how to get what he wanted. Very shrewd man. And so he, he, uh, he goes back and Joab then gets him in and the king kisses and that's our chapter. Now with that, that being the story, we considered Several different things. And you can remember that what really controls, if we want to be hermeneutically correct, what really controls is 1 Samuel 16, 7 is even bigger than 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 12. And what is really being taught here is this, that God is looking for a leader whose heart is right, and what is being shown to you, that in this transition of leadership, you've got a guy who is a murderer, deceitful, really a cheat, a liar, a guy that will do absolutely anything to get his own way. And this is not the kind of king that you want leading Israel. And so, having seen that, we made a big application and talked about several different things that we should do in our own lives to to realize that God is not impressed with us outwardly and physically. Um, He does not delight in the legs of a man, one verse scripture verse says. He, he, He delights in when our hearts are upright towards Him. Now, having said that, and then we looked at number four, uh, and you can remember, by the way, Absalom, outwardly and inwardly, and we asked this question, how beautiful was he? And obviously, in God's eyes, he was much like Eliab, or Hophni and Phinehas, and he wasn't that beautiful. Which leads us then to this question, and that is, what's another application? Well, here is another application that I think we have got to get and keep before us. And, we, and you can't let me let up on this, nor can you get tired of hearing it. And that is, this is an application number two, is another lesson on the awfulness of sin. Please remember that in these chapters, you've got rape, and you've got murder, and you've got deception, because David did basically the exact same thing. 
He committed adultery. He committed murder. He was very deceitful. And the, the sin has come home to roost. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is this. You reap what you sow. And if you, if you forget, look back to chapter 12 and look at verses 10 through 12, and you will see that this is the promise of Nathan the prophet. Yes, and please listen, everyone, because we need to remember this. Was David's sin completely forgiven? Yes. Psalm 51 talks about the wonders of, of his sin being forgiven. Psalm 32, he's going, oh, yes, how happy is the man who has all of his sins forgiven. Yes, it's wonderful. Oh, before I confess my sins, life was awful. So his sins were forgiven. Was fellowship with God restored? Yes, complete fellowship with God was restored. But are there still consequences to actions? And does God still bring discipline upon our life? Yes. We can't forget that. Please remember from some of the past few weeks, we talked about how deceitful sin is. In 12, 5 through 6, David hears about the sheep stealer and he wants the sheep stealer to die when he himself is an adulterer and murderer and he wasn't going to die. And the penalty for sheep stealing was to pay back fourfold. Isn't it interesting? Listen, the penalty for sheep stealing was to pay back fourfold. Now listen, David was guilty of adultery and murder. And guess how many of David's children die in these next few chapters? Four. Very interesting, isn't it, how the law is fulfilled there? But David, you can see sin in others when you can't see it in yourself. If you are a kind of person that just gets so enraged, oh, I'm just so mad at somebody, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, you must be careful. Because we have to realize this, we get very mad at somebody else, we've got to be careful, maybe it's showing us something in our own selves. Something else we learned about sin, and this is quickly by way of review to get us to another lesson, this isn't our lesson for today, is that sin is costly for you and for others. In this passage, David weeps and cries. Remember chapter 11? You've got a beautiful scene of a beautiful woman taking a bath, and David comes down and gets her and brings her back home, and all it's supposed to be wonderful, just like you'll see on TV tonight if you go home and watch TV. However, what you see in chapter 12, 13, and 14 is tears and tears and more tears. And the fact is, we say it so many times. A friend of mine told me this weekend, I've, I've been saying you don't break the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments break you. A friend of mine was telling me about a sermon he heard or someplace he was, and he says, covenant breakers don't win. And we live in a day and an age in which we don't think anything about breaking our covenants. But friends, covenant breakers lose. There's lots of tears and sorrows in our life because of it. Notice, other people will pay because of your sin. The baby dies, Tamar gets raped, all these other things happen because of your sin. We can't forget that. Third, sin is very unsatisfying long term. Amnon rapes Tamar. He had lusted after her for so long it made himself sick. The moment that he rapes her, he hates her. And he hates her with a greater hatred than he loved her before, the text says. Sin is unsatisfying. Short term, very pleasurable, but long term, it's very bad. That is why it's a wonderful thing to grow old living for Jesus Christ. The older you get, the better it is. When you are living in sin, the older you get, the worse it is. Because you're grabbing and trying to hold on to things. And as time goes by, as the clock ticks, sin becomes you have to have more of it to be able to fulfill your heart. And something that would help you turn from sin and say no to temptation this week would be something that may face you and say, yes, I could give in to that and that would give me temporary pleasure. But Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season because he looked ahead to what? His reward. And something that should help us in our Christian life is to realize this fact. Mark it down and don't miss it. Now please notice this. Sin also, here's the lesson from our chapter today. Sin also affects the way you treat others. I hope that you see this. 
David starts treating people completely different as a, after he did this sin. Now think about this. Sin, the consequences of sin, it is so big, it is so monstrous, we must have a Savior that's great to deliver us from it. Because, my friends, just consider this with me. Look here. here. Consider the way David treated people before and after chapter 11. Before, now let's just go down and just think about the last few chapters. I know there was a big break here, but just stop and think about it. In chapter 11, you go back, you have... Oh, and i got to change one thing here. This goes, uh, this goes more like this, okay? That, that's more of a bracket. Please notice this. Before, long-term kindness and loyalty to Saul. David was loyal to Saul. It, sta- it staggered us how patient David was in waiting for God to bring him to the king, become king, remember? He would not turn his hand against Saul. And how about this? Chapter 9, love and kindness towards Mephibosheth. Remember when his kingdom is established? He sits up there one day and he says, I want to be Hased to somebody. Who can I be Hased to? I want to be Hased to Mephibosheth. And he goes out to Mephibosheth, one of Saul's relatives. He did an unheard of thing. He brought him into the palace, let him eat at his table, and took care of him and see that all his fields were provided for. Mephibosheth, if you can remember, became a multimillionaire overnight. It was like he won the lottery. Do you remember? Notice in chapter 10, he hears about the king of the Ammonites dying. He sends a group of men up there to show love and kindness. They didn't receive it very well, if you can remember. But nevertheless, this is the way David is treating people. Now look at the way David treats people. Look how bad what sin can do. He's extremely cruel to Uriah. And then in 12, 5, and 6, he has no mercy towards the rich sheep steep stealer. He's going to kill the guy. And I know I've pounded that point to you, but that is very significant. In 1321, after Tamar is raped, he is angry, but he is paralyzed to do anything to Amnon and does nothing in regards to Absalom. Now stop and think how important this is. The secondary effects of sin. We can sometimes think of this. We can say, you know, if I think about it, I can see David and Bathsheba got together, their baby dies, God's judgment. And that makes a little bit of sense to us. And we think, okay, I think I've got to handle sin is very bad. No, you don't. It's a lot worse than that. Stop and think about it. Amnon rapes Tamar. That's directly related to the passage of punishment, of chastisement. Absalom kills Amnon. But even think this. Let's go a third step. Amnon rapes Tamar. David is furious but does nothing. Why do you think David did nothing? Because David thought, I can't do too much here. I mean, I basically raped Bathsheba, and that's, remember, the text basically says, I mean, the, Amnon and Tamar is a real rape, but it's, the, it's very close to a rape with Bathsheba, if you remember the text. I really can't do much. Now, Absalom kills Amnon and flees to another country, and what does David do? Basically nothing, and it drives Joab crazy. He says, when are they going to do something? And think of the paralyzing effects. He's paralyzed to do anything to Amnon. He does nothing in regards to Absalom. It even says in, in 1 Kings chapter 1 that another one of his sons, he never said no to them. He never told them not to do anything. He never brought any discipline. And here it's hard for me to understand this, but this is one of the great lessons of the Bible, so please listen carefully. Here you have David, who writes 73 of the Psalms, who kills Goliath, who is the great king of Israel, known as the man after the heart of God, and yet he is an absolutely horrible father. One of the reasons he was such a horrible father is because this is the kind of effects that sin has. And if there was ever anything that made a man's heart want to turn towards God in repentance, 
it would be to stop and think of what your sin will do to your own family. Stop and think of the impact that it's going to have. You never begin to know. And when I preach like this, I always will get a letter, a phone call, an email or something, and people will say, Kim, you know, you need to be a little bit more on the gracious side as you preach. Well, I hope I'm preaching the gracious side. I'm going to try to overwhelm you with God's mercy. But my friends, I want you to know something. It is horrible to live in sin. It destroys. It brings your life down the drain and it ruins everyone else's life around you. And it's something that ought to, in our society we live, we don't see that. It's all, it's all the wonder. Go for the gusto. Get what you can. Party hard, man. Go for it. Well, listen, you to live by your hormones, you're going to ruin people's lives. You give in to do the things that you want to do, it's going to be devastation on your family. And you shouldn't do it. Now, it's amazing to me how I've often noticed in my own life and in others that those that are so hard on others, unforgiving, who make a big deal about other sins and their faults, who are very judgmental, unloving people, are the very ones guilty in similar areas, similar areas but don't see it. And of course, we already talked about that. And so we need to stop and sit back and say, wow, sin has an impact. It impacts the way you treat people. You won't treat people the same, even though you're forgiven and even though you're restored. There's certain things that you cannot get back from. And you've got to uh, realize how important that is. And I, I hope that you take that in the spirit that it's given, taking all of these series as a package that God doesn't give up on his people. And I don't want to just discourage you, but God does not give up on his people. And so please don't forget that. The third thing I want us to consider then, it's, you're, you're going to think it's like number two, but it's really not. But I did save these to go together. You'll see why. In 14, 13, and 14, here's the question to be asked. Do you treat others the way God has treated you? And I realize this is a typical Kim Kaufman point that I have pounded you over the head with a million times. But I also will tell you this. It looms big in my heart. I can hardly talk about it without just feel a swell in my heart, in my face surging. This is it. You've got truth by the throat. Notice what happens in 14, 13, and 14. Look what happens. The lady has sucked David into this parable. He has bought a hook, line, and sinker. And he goes, okay, I'll protect your son. I need more than that. He goes, okay, don't worry, you bring any troublemaker to me. No, I want you to swear. And so he goes, I swear. She goes, you swear? Okay, now i got a question for you. And then she lets him have it, do you remember? And here's where she lets him have it. Look at verse 13. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? In other words, by keeping Absalom away, why are you going to hurt Israel? When the king says, this does not he convict himself? Aren't you being a little hypocritical? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. In other words, you're throwing Israel down the tubes. What a waste to have Absalom out there doing nothing. And then notice 14b. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. What a fantastic verse. What a rebuke this must have been to David. What a clear message is hidden. Look down there in verse 14 again. I want you to notice, there's a clear message. You sinned against Bathsheba. You murdered Uriah. You're still king. God devised a way for you to find mercy. How come you're not devising a way for Absalom to find mercy? See, friends, the church in America needs to hear this. Do you Now listen, let me ask you this question. Stop and think about it. Do you treat others in a way that reflects in even a tiny fashion the way God has treated you. Graciously, kindly, patiently, ready and quick and willing to forgive. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I know this. Daily, I confess my sins before God. I also know that I expect that forgiveness, and I am thankful for it, and I go on in, in faith, believing that God forgives me and restores me to fellowship, as 1 John 1.9 says. And I expect God to do that. Now, we expect others to do the same towards us. If we have sinned and someone else knows it, you know what we all expect? We all expect God to be merciful to us. And so something I want you to know is we expect others to do the same, yet even though we expect all that from God and we expect all that from everyone else, we don't do it towards others ourselves. Look at this, friends. I know I've quoted, I have quoted this verse possibly more than any other verse to you over the years. But look here. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. This is in the context of the church at Rome where there was a tremendous conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And there was all kinds of trouble between people that used to go to church on Saturday, they're now going to church on Sunday. People that used to celebrate Christmas, now they don't. I mean, that would be what it would be like for us. And the conclusion of this whole matter where Paul is hoping that this important church at Rome, which could influence the whole world, the conclusion of this is this. In regards to the way you get along with Christians, accept, warmly receive, warmly welcome one another as Christ warmly welcomed you. Now, we live in a day and an age in which there needs to be some conflict because there's lots of false doctrine in the church. But there also is such a truth that this is doctrine. The doctrine is Christians are to be kind and generous and loving and patient and forgiving with one another. I think we should be like God. Bring in discipline, yes, but never give up on someone. It is very important that we would do this, my friends. It was very important that this would be a big part of our lives. Another verse that I know I haven't used, and here's one I've hardly ever used. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the same thing. It struck me uh, uh, when we were on vacation. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, I've been joking about this on Wednesday nights as we've been studying 1 Timothy. But you know what this verse is saying? It's another way of saying this. Warmly receive other brothers. This is a command. Now, obviously, we don't kiss. If you watch the Olympics, you saw some of those European gymnastic men going up after they would do a great routine, right on the lips. Did you see that? I mean, it was, it was sort of hard. Can I illustrate it with John here a second? I, I, I won't do it. All right? But you would see, you would see the men kissing, and all American men were sort of going, oh, you know, hey, wait a second here, you know. So we may not, we not, we may not do this, but you, you know something? Listen, friends, here really, Jonathan doesn't think I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. Come here. Come here. No, wait, wait, stay it up a second, stay it up. But you know one thing it should mean? You know something it should mean? When you see another Christian, there should be a warmth in the way you greet them. You know why? Because, listen, you know what this verse is saying? The reason you greet one another with a holy kiss, the, the, we would do this with a warm and hearty handshake. Good to see you, John. Good to see you, too. Okay? Now, the reason we would do that, okay? The reason we would do that is this. Every meeting, every reception between Christians, are you listening? Every reception between Christians is a miniature demonstration of God's grace. 
God received me. How did Christ receive you? An awful, wretched sinner. And how did he receive you? He grabbed you and he pulled you to himself. And how are we to receive one another? Warmly. All the other divisions that separate people break down and disappear because of God's wonderful grace towards us in Christ. I've got written in my notes. I'm not going to use it, but I got Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Tell that parable. And I think you will get tired of me if I keep doing that every time, but you guys know the 11 million and the $15 illustration. I heard this week somebody said, I'm not talking to so and so. And it was a Christian man talking about a Christian brother. They both go to this church. I'm not talking to so and so. That same person, if I preach on drunkenness, will preach on, Pastor! We get so frustrated. And the question is this, did we expect God's mercy and forgiveness? Did we expect our spouse? Did we expect our friends to forgive us? Yes. And in the church of Jesus Christ, listen, relationships are not because we all think everyone's got a milk-white toast background with no problem, everything's runny in the past. Yet we all know this, we're groups of people that have blown it. And God didn't give up on us, and we're not about to give up on each other. We talked fourthly about the balance of justice and mercy, and I hope you understood that. We won't go back over that. And then we'll make this rather quick. It's rather, it could be rather lengthy. This was going to be an entire sermon tonight, but I will tell you what we'll talk about last. And this just really struck me as an overall expositional point. What legacy are you living, leaving, and what counsel are you giving? Did you notice that all through these stories, there's people talking to one another, and it's good and bad counsel? Stop and think of this. Think about this. Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, with urgency, races out to, to, to stop an angry, crazed David who's going to wipe out the richest man in the south where he's supposed to become king. She does it, and God's, David says, God sent you. How about Nathan? How carefully he devises that story, how the Holy Spirit led him as he devised that story, and he brings David right into it where David realizes he's guilty. How about Samuel? Samuel's scared to death. Saul's going to kill him. Fearlessly, Samuel has to turn away from Saul. Do you remember? He gives him the word, you're rejected. And he kept giving him the word before that to try to help him. Jonathan, how about this? You son of a perverse woman. Remember? Saul picks up the spear right at the royal dining table and looks at Jonathan and goes, you son of a perverse woman, you're going to stand up for him? You're standing up for David right here at my dining table. And he throws, but, but Jonathan did. He stood up for David. He stood up for what was right. How about Tamar? She was right even though it failed. In other words, whether or not, people say this. Here's what I hear all the time. I can't go talk to so-and-so. Why can't you? It won't work. They won't listen. Yeah, but Tamar is an example of giving, saying the right counsel and giving the right, leaving the right legacy of standing for what was right even if she couldn't physically stop anything. She goes down in history as giving very wise counsel that was unheeded. And how about this? Jonadab. Can you remember him? Twice in the 13th chapter. What a loser. What a politician. He, we, we would elect him as something. <laughs> He's politically correct. you know why? Think about this. He's politically correct. 
he goes to Amnon, who he thinks is going to be the next king. And he's sitting around thinking, ah, he's the next king. Ah, I'll get up in the higher courts. And so he says, here's what you do if you want Tamar. A little bit later, when Absalom kills Amnon, what does he do? He says, that was in Absalom's plan for the last two years, ever since Amnon raped Tamar. And there he is now, he's flopping sides again. And he's a shrewd man. He's two-faced. By the way, stop and think where his counsel led. His counsel leads to all kinds of trouble. Stop and think of where the counsel of others led. How about the messenger in 2 Samuel 11? David says, who is that woman? The messenger comes back. That's the wife of Uriah. Now maybe I'm reading into this one. But I think we should stop and ask ourselves, shouldn't the man have cared more about the law of God than the fear of the king? Maybe I'm wrong because maybe I don't understand the culture. But given the case, shouldn't it be said a little bit more? She's the wife of Uriah. You shouldn't take it. That's violating the seventh commandment that you say you love. And as you write those psalms, David, you say you love the law. See, friends, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And Samuel teaches us to look where our counsel can lead. Look at the, look at the things that happen. Tremendous blessing on David because he listens to Abigail. God's will coming about and bringing a man humbly to repentance through Nathan. Samuel driving out the bad leadership. Jonathan showing loyalty, even though it was to his own disadvantage. And on and on we can go. But the thing I want you to remember is it is so important that we would be careful. I hear, I hear Christian friends and they get together and they say, well, if a man is going to treat you like that, then why don't you just divorce him? What kind of, who have you been listening to? It sounds to me like you're a Jonadab. Or at the very best, the weak messenger. We need to love each other enough that we stand up and tell each other the truth. Or the supposed Christian counseling that's going on today. It's, it's very bad. And it can lead to all kinds of trouble. As one person said, I finally found someone who told me, who was a Christian, who told me I could get a divorce. And so I think it would be a good time to stop after all this counsel has been going back and forth and stop and ask ourselves, hey, where do you stand? Too many times I've been a Jonadab, I have to admit. But if we really care about people, we've got to be tough at times. If we really care about people, we've got to be very lenient at times. If we really care about people, you say, well, Kim, which is it? <laughs> you know what it is? You need sweet wisdom from above so that you know when to be tough, when to be lenient. We all need it, and I need it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make us a group of loving people. Fearlessly loving, velvet steel in our commitment to each other. And may you receive the praise and the honor and the glory. Amen. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.